In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about the intoxicating allure of new experiences. We here at the No Sleep Magic Shop hope everyone is staying safe and healthy as we go through the upheaval of our usual routines. I'm sure all of us know that fictional horror can help us forget about real life for a while. To that end, I hope all of you are aware of our efforts to provide some free distractions during times of self-isolation. Last week, we put 15 stories on our SoundCloud page in a playlist we're calling Stay Sleepless at Home. These are stories from past Season Pass episodes. That's almost 10 hours of storytelling right there. Just go to soundcloud.com slash the no sleep podcast or search for the no sleep podcast on the SoundCloud app for our Stay Sleepless at Home playlist. And by now, you've probably seen the release of our free pandemic bonus episode, Five Tales About Plagues and Pandemics from past season pass episodes, which the team and I share from our No Sleep headquarters. Almost three hours of infectious storytelling there. So it's with our best wishes that we share with you those 13 hours of distracting horror. We hope you and your loved ones enjoy the tales and share them with others. As we like to say, stay safe, stay sane, and stay sleepless. But no pandemic will keep us from continuing our regular episodes, fingers crossed. So let's keep casting our magic with this week's episode. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we meet a man whose partner has just left him. Naturally, he's pretty depressed. And just as naturally, his best friend wants to help with that. However, when that help comes in the form of getting an experimental recreational drug on the black market, it might not be so helpful after all. In this tale, shared with us by author Nick Moore, it soon becomes quite clear that taking mystery drugs isn't the way to get over a relationship. I join Graham Rowett, Peter Lewis, Jesse Cornett, and Mick Wingert in performing this tale. Dare you risk it? You could throw caution to the wind and take this mystery pill. It's supposed to be like nothing else. Cast off your hesitations and take a hit of forever a drug.
die tonight? Scott was bordering on junkie status, and I was always wary about spending time with him, normally in the filthy apartment of some dealer friend while he shot up. It seemed like he was bordering on a collapse, and I was scared of doing the same. I don't know, what are you thinking? On the other hand, I'd been despondent since breaking up with Ruth. Maybe something to take my mind off the pain would help. I knew she was better off without me. I was just holding her back. Meet me at uh, Jared's. He said he wants to try something new. This made me feel a little better. Jared was probably the nicest dealer Scott knew, and his stuff was generally sourced well. Plus, his apartment was at least somewhat clean. You know I don't fuck with needles. Yeah, man, it's fine. Nothing like that. I showed up at eight with three beers in my system that had failed to calm the nervous energy I was feeling. Whatever, it's fine. It's going to be fine. Jared was happy to see me and poured me a whiskey. I felt a little weird and sat down at the table. He put three black pills down in front of us. I got this from a trusted contact overseas. Said it's like nothing else. He smiled. I thought the three of us could test drive it before I put in an order. See if it's really worth it. Stuff is called forever. Scott laughed and downed a pill. Jared and I followed suit. I sat down and stared at the TV, waiting for it to kick in. It was fine. I felt really mellow and sort of like the room and me with it was stretching in a weird way. We all wound up falling asleep. I woke up the next day feeling fine and we parted ways. No big deal. Certainly nothing life-changing. Years passed. I never left town, never really did anything. Could never kick smoking cigarettes either. Wasn't a surprise when the doc told me the blood I was coughing up was cancer. Shit, too late to do anything. I was alone when I took my last breath. I woke up back in Jared's apartment, sun streaming through the window. What the fuck? I hallucinated an entire sad life? What was that drug? I mumbled something at Jared and Scott and walked outside. What a weird dream. I decided I could do more. Maybe that was a wake-up call. I applied to a job I didn't think I was qualified for and got it. Stopped screwing around. Quit smoking. Married a nice girl. Had a kid who loved to play ball outside. He didn't even see the truck coming the day he chased his ball into the street. But I did. Probably never moved that fast in my life. Fast enough to push him out of the way. Not fast enough to get myself out of the way. Oh well. What a way to go. Protecting someone you love. I woke up in Jared's apartment. Fuck me. What the hell was happening? I had to short-circuit this. I must have been tripping. I decided to throw myself off the bridge down the street. When I got there, I found I physically couldn't do it. Something stopped me. So killing myself was out. I had to go home and figure this out. I wasn't paying attention as I walked up the stairs to my apartment. If I had, I would have noticed the neighbor's kid had left a toy car on one of them. When I slipped and tumbled, I knew it was gonna be bad. I woke up in Jared's apartment. Maybe this could be fun. However long this lasts, I can do anything and it's not real? 
Like lucid dreaming, but it lasts for decades? I tried a life of crime. Got shot coming out of an electronics store. Not cut out for that, it hurt like hell. Screwed around, partied too much, overdosed. Back to Jared's when it all goes to hell. I'd lived 10 or 12 lifetimes when I saw her. Ruth. It might seem weird to have forgotten her, but you have to remember we'd broken up probably 300 years before. She was older, divorced, sad. She married the wrong guy after our breakup, got abused for years. I was so depressed after our talk, I just walked for hours, thinking about how sad her life had turned out. I thought I was helping her. Found myself in a rough neighborhood. When I got jumped, I didn't hand over my wallet. That was a mistake. I woke up in Jared's apartment. This time, I could fix it. I bought a bunch of flowers and went to Ruth's. She took me back. We got married, had a family. We traveled the world, best friends. It was incredible. The best life I ever had. I died a happy old man, surrounded by family. I woke up in Jared's apartment. I bought a bunch of flowers and went to Ruth's. If I was going to be stuck in this Groundhog Day shit, I knew what to do. You know what isn't boring? Living the best goddamn life you can. Twice. Three times. Ten times. The rough edges get smoothed away. You learn when bad news is coming, when you need to sidestep a bad argument. Just absolute happiness. If you get to choose happiness, you choose it. Every damn time. Then one day, we were in Paris, celebrating our 30th anniversary. I'd taken this trip with her 20 times. She walked down to the cafe to get me some breakfast. A car jumped the sidewalk and killed her. That had never happened before. The next lifetime was worse. We made it 12 years after our wedding before she got some weird flu variant and died. The next one, she was diagnosed with cancer a year after marriage. We never had kids. The next one, her building had burned down the night I spent at Jared's. I stood outside with flowers in my hand, staring at the smoking ruins. A filthy old homeless man walked up next to me as I stared in disbelief. Uh, thought you could cheat it, did you? Thought he wouldn't notice? <laughs> but he did. He started laughing as he walked away. But he did. <laughs> He turned back from time to time to smile at me. My lives turned dark. Friends were killed in horrible accidents. Serial killers struck peaceful towns and ravaged the families of those I loved. Overdose, disease, murder, death. Everything was wrong. The world turned too. Dictators came to power. Wars broke out. Hatred rose. Cities burned countries shattered. The world bled. The old man would appear from time to time, though centuries would sometimes pass between sightings. He always laughed at me, told me that he had me now, always smiled at me. I drifted from one dying port town to the next, finding work where I could, drinking away shitty lifetime after shitty lifetime. I was sitting in a bar in the capital of East Scotland, watching some cable news about a genocide in some country that hadn't even existed in most of my lifetimes. The bartender laughed, and I looked at him clearly for the first time. It was the old man. He smiled at me. Who the fuck are you? 
I've seen him longer than you. He sees you now. <laughs> Where do I go to find him? <laughs> you go to Samar in the Philippines. Uh, not now. In your next life, when you're still young. Find Beringen. He waits for you there. <laughs> he smiled at me, and I stumbled for the door. I lived another dozen years before a boat I was on went down in a storm. I woke up in Jared's apartment. This time, I immediately started looking for a way to get to the Philippines. I sold my car and walked to work for six months, eating the cheapest food I could find. I arrived confused. Turns out Beringen isn't a real place. Or maybe it is. I found work under the table making money however I could. I asked about the invisible city of local folklore. I asked questions about the lore behind it. I learned how many people who have seen it are victims of demonic possession. I searched for it, every chance I got. Years passed by. I lived an invisible life, like the invisible city I sought. The world rotted away, but I still searched. One night I was walking home, and a car stopped next to me. I heard a familiar laugh through the window. I looked in and saw the old man. He smiled at me. I got in the car. We drove for hours. The gas gauge never moved. Finally, in the distance, I saw a gleaming city of light. He pulled over and gestured. You have to walk from here. He's waiting for you in the center of the city. He smiled. I got out and walked. It felt like I walked for days, but the sun never came up, and I never grew thirsty. I walked into a gleaming, deserted city. I felt drawn to a giant tower in the center of the city. It glowed with light, despite having no windows or obvious source of illumination. I wasn't surprised to find a single door at the bottom of the tower. I entered and began to climb. As I went, I heard a voice, deep and old. I couldn't make out the words. I climbed forever, finally reaching a door. I opened it and stepped inside, facing a giant black abyss. The voice was everywhere now. Every word ripped me apart. I watched you cheat me. Did you think you could live your lives forever? I screamed. You're with me now. Forever. I destroyed this world. The abyss closed, and I realized I was staring at a giant mouth. It opened again. I thought of Ruth. The world went black. I woke up in the hospital. Scott jumped up from the chair in the corner. Oh, dude, I'm so glad you're awake. What happened? He looked over his shoulder. We were just about to take those pills, and you, you threw up all over them, and then collapsed. You had this crazy fever. How long have I been out? Four days. Ruth keeps chasing me out of here, thinks I did this. He glanced at his shoes. <sighs> Nurses don't like me much, either. 
Why is Ruth here? She's your emergency contact, dude. Hasn't left your side even to go home and sleep. She's just getting coffee now. He paused and shifted awkwardly. Uh, do you have any cash? Jared is kind of pissed you puked on his stuff. I heard an excited shriek and barely managed to turn my head as Ruth launched herself at me. I was in the hospital for another four days before getting discharged. Doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, said it must have been a freak infection. Getting discharged was great. Ruth was picking me up and bringing me to Scott's so I could go with him to his first N.A. meeting. Seeing me almost die scared him, and he was trying to straighten himself out. Then Ruth and I had a special date planned. Things were getting figured out. We were thrilled for another chance. I walked out to the curb and waited for Ruth to pull her car around. I stood there in the sunlight, feeling alive for the first time in, I guess, millennia. A nurse rolled another patient in a wheelchair out to the curb, locked his wheel, and walked inside. I felt the breeze on my face and smiled. The old man in the wheelchair laughed. I stared at him, and he winked. He let you go. Make sure he doesn't get his teeth into you again. Then he smiled at me. This time, I smiled back. Senior Prom, the stuff that dreams are made of, the party to end all parties, the single most important event in anyone's high school career. It's supposed to be a night of magic and memories, romance and good times. But in this tale shared with us by author Marcus Demenda, we hear about a prom which was memorable for wrong, terrifying reasons. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Kyle Akers, Alexis Bristow, Jeff Clement, Mike Delgadio, and Addison Peacock. So regardless of how excited you are about the special night, watch out for students acting strangely. And whatever you do, avoid the punch. Otherwise, you'll never forget Midnight at the Acid Light Dance. Here she comes. I dropped the cigarette onto the concrete and checked my swatch. 7.10. Still 20 minutes before first period. I lit another one, winking through the open glass doors at Mr. Sims, my guidance counselor, who frowned at me with disapproval. Bus number 22 trundled in behind two others and squeaked to a stop. Its door hissed open allowing the freshmen and sophomores of Woodbridge High to file out in a bustle of bleached jeans, skater shirts, neon rah-rahs, parachute pants, and big hair. 
These were the underclassmen, the kids who still had to ride the cheese to school. And also Delaney Woodruff, who was a senior. Like me, Delaney didn't have a car of her own, not even a broken down piece of shit like my boyfriend Stevie had. Nor did she have any friends with a car. Nor did she have any friends, period. Don't look at her. Stevie plucked the smoke from my lips and stole a drag. Brittany, don't. She'll think you want to be friends or some shit. As if. But I felt bad for her. Secretly, I really did. She stepped off, her greasy black hair adhering to the sides of her face like lumpy finger paint, her pale skin surrounding sunken black eyes that seemed to register shock. Only, it wasn't shock. It was abandonment, the deliberate and ongoing shunning we'd all participated in since freshman year. If she were to catch sight of me, I'd look away mutter an apology to the boyfriend for the accidental contact. Only today, she didn't do that. As soon as her mismatched sneakers left asphalt and hit concrete, she turned back to the bus. Today, for once, she wasn't the last one off. A boy, tall and shambling, and with a battered golfer's cap shadowing his face, followed her. He shuffled to her on nervous feet, his darkened eyes upturned to the building like a wary animal sizing up the lair of a predator. She took his hand, squeezed his shoulder. Looks like somebody made a friend. I stole my cigarette back and found it smoldering to the filter. I flicked it away, disgruntled. No way. Oh, no. That shit will not stand. But the soft laugh caught in Stevie's throat. The boy, whoever he was, looked up, right at us. And that didn't make any sense. We were too far away for him to have heard us. Yet, he did. And his face, now dully visible under the soft fluorescent lights of the bus tunnel was ruined. Half of it, anyway. The right side of his face was fine. Almost handsome, even. A kid our own age, or slightly younger. He had a shaggy growth of blonde hair so light it was almost platinum, which made the darkness of his eyes downright unnerving. But the left side... Oh my god, Stevie. What happened to him? I tried not to stare. Stevie was as instantly fixated as I was, but he managed to shrug. He didn't answer me. There had to have been a fire or something. The skin was uneven, patchy, crisscrossed with white lines of raised scar tissue. His lips were shrunken to near non-existence. Bright white teeth showed through a gap near the corner where his mouth didn't quite close. He drew his cap down further over the ruined half of his features, best he could. The hand that did so wore a black, fingerless glove. The other one did not. He allowed Delaney to move him toward us, then passed us toward the entrance. 
He took short, unsteady steps, as though he wore leg irons. Stevie and I, and everyone with us in the cramped corner of brick and concrete that made up the smoking court, drew back from them reflexively. But when they made it to the entryway doors, he glared back over his shoulder at us, like we'd done something wrong. Delaney took his elbow, guiding him forward again. Come on, Diggs. Forget those people. They're jerks. They... they don't matter. Jerks, I thought. That was us, all right. The word was actually kinder than the one I might have used in those rare moments of reflection when I bothered to think on how we treated Delaney Woodruff on how I treated her. But as for the they don't matter, that was almost funny. I was the head of the student social committee and the first non-male vice president of the student council ever elected at Woodbridge High. I'd just gotten my acceptance letter from Virginia Tech. Stevie Harker, well, maybe he hadn't yet figured out what he was going to do with his life. But in the meantime, he played bass in an up-and-coming metal band that had opened for kicks at Hammerjacks. He was popular, funny, beautiful. We both were. Everyone loved us. Delaney Woodruff, by contrast, was less than nobody. It wasn't just me and Stevie who ignored her. The entire school did. From inside the building, the warning bell and from Stevie's pocket, a short staccato beep. He pulled out the pager and smiled. Five-day vacation if you get caught with that. Stevie shrugged. He turned it in his palm to show me the readout. 20 tab 200. God, Stevie. I don't know if I like this. And that message is like so obvious if you get busted with that thing. The readout was a quantity and a price. At tonight's senior prom, I'd be in charge of the early setup, including the dance mix and the punch bowls. My date, Stevie, would be in charge of the acid. I'd never done LSD before. Apart from Stevie, none of my friends had either. It'll be fun. Come on, girlfriend, we better go. Don't wanna be late to class. At study hall, fourth period, I saw them together again. In fact, I confess I spied on them. The new kid was still wearing his hat. The rule against having them on in the building apparently didn't extend to burn victims. And he seemed quite at ease at the card catalog cabinet, thumbing through the thin pull-out drawers with a familiarity that was a hallmark of nerds everywhere. Every now and again, he'd pull a card, flash it to Delaney, and off she'd go, soon to return with another book, which they'd add to the pile on top of the shelf. From halfway across the library, I surreptitiously watched over the rim of my glasses as they moved their pile to one of the tables. As soon as they sat down, side by side instead of across from each other, all four of the other kids who had been sitting there 
first gathered up their things and moved to the next table over. The new kid opened his half-ruined mouth as if to protest or question, but Delaney only took his good hand and patted it. It's okay. I couldn't help being curious. By the time 15 more minutes had passed in relative quiet, broken only occasionally by their unintelligible whisperings, I didn't even know what I was reading anymore. Delaney and her mysterious new friend, however, appeared to have found something. Delaney tapped a page, and the boy leaned over it, nodding. Then she got up, drawing him up after her and leading him to the corner cubby with the microfiche readers. There she left him, sitting in front of a blank screen and staring at it with an equally blank expression as she hurried out of sight into the closed-door film archive. Had he never seen one of these things before? Their table was unoccupied, their books abandoned. I gathered my things and strode past it, ever so casually. I stole a glance at the covers. Worst disasters of the 20th century looked cheerful. There was also the 10 deadliest fires in U.S. history and Changing the Code, How Tragedy Inspires Law. The books were old, outdated by decades. I was surprised they hadn't been purged from the library's collection by now. Delaney's boyfriend, the unburned half of him anyway, didn't look older than 16. The door to the film archive opened, and Delaney emerged, two black, fist-sized plastic rolls of newspaper reprints in hand. She pulled up a chair next to him, guided him through the threading process and scrolling. Then she kissed him on the cheek, the ruined cheek, and got up to leave as the bell signaled the next change of class. Don't do it. I heard the phantom voice of Stevie whisper in my ear, even though he'd be halfway across the other side of the building right now, leaving Trig on his way to government class. He's pariah, girlfriend. Just like Delaney. Also, he's fucking heinous. I went to him, stood over him, resting my arm on top of the reader. His eyes never left it. From here, the top of his hat shielded his whole face from me. What's your name? Why do you care? His gaze remained fixed straight ahead. He turned the knob, scrolled ahead by a page. It was from the Fairview Register, an almost local paper from just two towns away, but the byline of the article placed the story in Collinwood, Ohio, in 1908. March 5th, to be exact. He clicked the screen dark before I could read any more than that. Because usually, when I warn people they're going to get killed, I like to know their names first. And that's exactly what's going to happen to you if you keep hanging around with Delaney Woodruff. Really? Somebody should. I'm overdue. But forgive me, my name is Diggory Addington. And you are? Diggory? Addington? Was the kid even for real? 
Then I recalled Delaney referring to him as Diggs. Okay. Weird, but okay. I'm Brittany. Brittany Styles. And I'm serious. Sooner or later, somebody's going to jump your ass if you stay friends with that walking disease. Thought you should know. Why do you think that is? Because she's been, like, selected for exclusion, Diggory. She shouldn't be here. He turned to look me full in the face. I literally caught the gasp by putting my hand over my lips, but I made myself keep looking at him. I knew that what I was doing was shitty, petty and awful in the worst possible way. Later, I'd feel bad about it. But it was also right. It was true. The kid was heading for a major beatdown if he didn't fall in line fast. Who made that decision? You? No. I honestly hadn't. I had no idea where the idea originally came from, but it had been in place since day one, freshman year. What her mother had been thinking allowing her, or making her, come to school here was anybody's guess. It's just the way it is. Delaney can't have friends at Woodbridge High. You wouldn't understand. I might. Perhaps I understand better than you. I moved in next door to her last week. We have had conversation, Brittany. Dude, you're talking like an old man. Cut that shit out. And I've shared this building with that sad sack of shit for four years, so... Know her well, do you? The two of you are friendly. Cordial. Cordial with the daughter of Edwin Woodruff? The longtime Woodbridge Senior High Guidance Counselor who'd taken up the summertime hobby of luring students into his car to murder them in the woods? Not likely. I wouldn't say so, no, but- You needn't worry. Delaney Woodruff won't be your problem much longer. And if you know anyone who might be good enough to kill me, please tell them to wait until after the dance. I won't fight. He looked down, studying his hands, which were palm up, both the unburned one and the one he hid in the glove. Then I won't let them fight. If I'm still here, I'll stop them. Whoa there, Diggs. I hardly noticed I'd adopted Delaney's nickname for him. When I had used the word kill before, I'd meant it as hyperbole. But he had taken it literally and welcomed it. Let's take a step back from the whole death thing for a sec, okay? I can't step back from it, Brittany. His eyes closed, hands balling into fists. I am well acquainted with death. Right, I thought, easing back a few steps of my own. One with the night and all that. Got it. Can't say I didn't warn you. Stop it. 
But by then, I didn't think he was talking to me anymore. I had no idea who he was talking to, but whoever it was seemed to exist only in his mind. Stop yelling at me. It's my turn, not yours. I turned from him, started away from him at a brisk stride, a pace just shy of running. I'm first in line. I'm in charge here. Go back. Go back. I returned to the table where I'd left my things, his voice fading to a memory by the time I was halfway there. And I hauled ass out of the library using the nearest exit, not wanting to come nearer to the thing that called himself Diggory Addington than I had to. Let someone else deal with that bullshit. Not my problem. That decision, cowardly as it was, didn't stick long enough to even accompany me to fifth period. I'm already late, I told myself, letting myself into the guidance office without invitation or summons, and demanding to see Mr. Sims, like, now. I met Stevie by the door to the lecture hall, standing there totally unconcerned while the the end-of-the-day school exodus swirled around us like confetti in a wind tunnel. He wagged a reproving finger at me as I came to him. Told you. Get too close to a pile of shit and you're gonna end up with some stink on you. Stifle it. I took him by the elbow and marched him across the main student concourse, back to the library, a place he avoided whenever possible. Sims had been no help at all. He'd cited student confidentiality, said something about it being only natural that two lonely kids might pair up together, and that I should be happy for them, made half-admonitory allusions to the universal shunning of Delaney Woodruff, which was rich coming from him. Teachers and admin were as guilty as anyone, to the extent they could be and still make a pretense of grown-up concern. I didn't know for sure, but it seemed likely enough that he had known Delaney's murdering father himself. Had they worked together? Had they been buddies? He had promised, in that condescending way reserved exclusively for adults who think kids are overreacting, to talk to them both. Chances were, he'd said, Diggs had only wanted to get under my skin. A defense mechanism, he'd called it. Retaliation for the social ostracism. Yeah, sure. Diggs had only started school here today, and claimed already that he was taking Delaney to prom. That was some kind of ostracism. If they were really coming to the dance, they hadn't bothered submitting their names for the prom royalty ballot. That much was good. The last thing we needed was for Delaney Woodruff to go all sissy space-sick and a bucket of blood on us at the last moment. I hustled Stevie through the library doors. And why are we going to the library again? Shouldn't we be getting ready? It's only again for me. I'd already explained this to him in sixth period English. What I wanted to do would not take long and I didn't have to be at the Potomac Inn Ballroom until 7.30. 
If digging up Diggs' research kept Stevie from sealing his own pre-party deal, so much the better. I don't want to do this alone. Scared? I glared at him. Okay, okay, no big whoop. Lead on. I clicked on the reader, threaded the film. I turned the scroll knob past the blank frames at the start of the reel. One, two, three. Seriously, Britt, how do you even know what you're looking- This. I pointed. Then, my breath caught. Oh, God, Stevie. I read him the headline. Collinwood, Ohio, March 5th, 1908. Lakeview School Burns. Dozens missing. Feared dead. The grainy, black-and-white photograph that covered half of the page showed a hollowed-out, scorched wreck of a building, hardly recognizable as a school. The exterior had been brick, and much of that had crumbled apart in the blaze. Beneath that, smaller pictures of the disaster as it unfolded. The all-volunteer fire department and its horse-drawn engines, pitifully insufficient to the task of containing a firestorm three stories high. The frantic newsies, the screaming parents who could only watch and listen as their children burned to death, far beyond the reach of any help or rescue. Looking at the pictures, I felt like I could hear them myself. The parents... They're dying children. Why? Brittany, I'm sorry, but why would that waste case give a shit? This was 80 years ago. March 4th. This article's from the day after. They had to know more later. Brittany, wait. The next article I found, right around 4 o'clock, was dated months after the disaster. I had to go deep into the paper this time three pages from the back. Lakeview fire. Terror. Hopelessness. No answers. Stevie looked away. I read aloud. Final death toll at 175. Two teachers, one rescuer, and 172 students between the ages of 5 and 15. City funding provided for the burial of the 19 children whose remains could not be identified. Brittany, come on. This is ancient history. You're torturing yourself. That was true. I'd gone for the tissues in my purse already. The tears crept up on me, but I kept reading. Even now, investigators remain torn between various theories including students smoking in the basement near flammable materials, heating pipes resting over wooden fixtures, and the possible liability of the school's head janitor, Fritz Herder, for running the boiler too hot. Stevie sighed, took my hand. Stop. Please? The brick exterior of the building, which only had two exits, turned the entire structure into a giant chimney, incinerating its wooden interior over a period of three hours. 
Open stairways and the lack of fire escapes are believed to have only increased this effect. When the fire blocked the front door, children rushed the back door in a mob. But when the passage bottlenecked at a vestibule divided by partitions, they could only scramble and pile on top of each other, forming a blockade that... Stevie turned off the reader, ripped the film spool from under the projection lens. Enough, okay? Yeah. It was more than enough. It was too much. I jammed the tissues back into my purse and stood. I think I get it now. Get what? You still haven't said- You've seen him, Stevie. You know. He's... He's crazy. I think he thinks- All right, all right, I get you. Go ahead. Say it. I think he thinks he was there. And you're right. He stood after me, taking my hands again, kissing me. He's crazy. Case closed. And so is the library in like ten minutes. Can we get back to our lives now? Prom. A night tailor-made for memory. An evening of meticulously orchestrated magic. God knows I'll never forget mine. I almost didn't go. I nearly called Kelly Tamaris to cover my duty at setup. I held the kitchen phone in my hand for a solid five minutes. After explaining everything to my mother and listening to her squawk about how much the dress rental had cost before making up my mind. The guilt assailed me harder than ever. The newspaper images of the school fire hovered in my mind like retina burn when I shut my eyes and tried to squeeze them out. As distant as those events were, in terms of time and place, I somehow connected them to my own transgressions. The four years of abusive neglect I had participated in with Delaney the intrusion into the sick, twisted mind of her new friend. How desperate they must have felt, each clinging to the other in their loneliness and confusion. I was to blame for some of that. And they would be there. Diggory had said so. I saw no reason to disbelieve him, other than finding it doubtful Delaney would have had the money to rent a prom dress. She was on reduced lunch at school. She didn't have nice things, didn't even wear makeup. Hell, she hardly even cleaned herself. Just go, I finally decided. And don't be an asshole tonight. Don't let the others be assholes either. But this decision, I think with all the wisdom of a little age and a lot of hindsight, was mostly selfish. In the end, you only get one senior prom. Junior prom, which was held two weeks earlier in the school gymnasium, and with half as many chaperones as students, would have been easier to skip. But the last great shindig of my high school experience, celebrated five miles from the school itself and with only a token presence of adults on hand, just wasn't to be missed. If I did, Stevie might dump me. So, at 7.30 exactly, 
I found myself lining up the stacks of cassette tapes, all stopped to exactly the right place for the best tracks, next to the mixing board and the speakers. Then, trying not to trip over the white satin of my dress, or spill anything on it, I carted over the punch bowls to the refreshment table and got to mixing. From the back of the ballroom, chatting with friends, Stevie winked at me. On the inside pocket of his tuxedo jacket, just under the bright red rose he wore on the outside, he had a sheet of 20 acid tabs. This he kept sandwiched between two square-cut sheets of perforated window screen with a small leaden fishing weight to keep them submerged. He promised it would be a light trip, diffused thin under all that punch shared by so many people. Most of the kids had no idea. Some of them had never even smoked grass. At 7.50, he met me by the punch bowls. They'll find it. After it's over. They'll know what happened. So what? God knows I didn't do it, right? The cherry punch was darker than the lime. He dropped it in. Care for a drink? (laughs) I didn't. I wasn't even looking at him. I was watching the doors. Ten minutes early, they were opening. Delaney and Diggory had arrived. She wasn't beautiful, but she was striking. Her dress hovers in my memory more clearly than my own. Silky, satiny red, off the shoulders, with a black orchid for a corsage that matched her hair and her eyeshadow perfectly. She was a portent, a preview of the goth era to come in the 90s, a scarlet thundercloud threatening an imminent storm. But that storm never came. Not from her. Delaney Woodruff never hurt anyone in her short, pitiful life. As for Diggs Addington, he arrived in a suit with actual coattails, as well as the standard cummerbund. The cuffs of his shirt had gold cufflinks. Real gold, I thought then, and still believe now. He had money, even if she didn't. And yet his appearance could not help but register as ghoulish. He was like a corpse dressed for a funeral, one in which the coffin should have remained closed. They came into the ballroom together, hand in hand, looking straight ahead, as though daring us to throw them out. And by their very presence, of course, they were. Stevie, remember... You promised. They're early. I don't think they're here to help decorate. That was fair enough, but it was only by ten minutes. There were already thirty or so others in the ballroom with us, milling around and chatting, waiting only for the music to start so they could step out onto the dance floor. You promised. This has gone on long enough. We're almost done with school. Whatever her father did, it's not her fault. Time to let it go. You told the others? He shook his head, but in regret, not disagreement. 
I got the word out. Yeah. For you. Only for you. Jesus, look at him. Fucking gag me, but those two are fucking perfect for each other. Also true. I stroked his arm, turned his face back my way. Then let them have each other. And don't worry about it. I'm right here, Stevie. Let's focus on us. It shouldn't have been too hard. Others were filing through the doors now. Our shop teacher, Mr. Hennessy, had already taken up his post as DJ and was running his finger down the song list. R.A.P., Mrs. Gray, greeted the newcomers, complimenting all on how wonderful they looked, pronouncing a few couples even as positively fetching. The corner of Stevie's lip curled in an agreeable smile. Care for a drink, my princess? He hooked his elbow for me to take. According to him, Mr. Hennessy had even asked which punch bowl would be safe, acknowledging that the spiking of at least one of them would be inevitable at a senior prom. What would he think, I wondered, if he knew the secret ingredient was LSD and not just cheap vodka? I sighed, intertwined my elbow inside of Stevie's. Just one. When the music starts, I want to dance. And at the end of the night, I want to be able to walk out of here. Thompson Twins, Duran Duran, Run DMC, Ario Speedwagon. Mr. Hennessy dutifully did his part and played everything I asked of him, sneaking in the occasional back-of-the-rack track from his own collection of Hendrix and Joplin just to amuse himself. Stevie and I danced to it all. Everyone did, alternatively hopping around like fools to the top 40 or swaying under the glitter ball to the occasional power ballad. For Stevie, this was more an indulgence for my benefit. This music was not his brand. But still, I think he had a good time. At least in the beginning. My eyes kept returning to the ballot box. It was hard not to hope Stevie and I would win, even though our friends Carissa and Mikey were a virtual shoo-in. They were just as good-looking, just as popular, and better dancers than us. I didn't think they'd hold it against me that Stevie and I hadn't voted for them. Nor had we succumbed to the temptation of a joke vote for Delaney and Diggory, who sat together at a table with their hands held as often as dancing. And when they did dance, it was decidedly awkward. They had no idea what they were doing. No, Stevie and I had broken the rules and voted for ourselves. Same as anyone with half a chance. And apart from the bubble of space that continued to surround Delaney wherever she went, the occasional pointed finger or derisive laughter or unkind word, the Woodbridge Senior High School class of 88 left her and her freakish boyfriend alone. At 10 o'clock, the acid kicked in. Maybe it started a bit earlier. I'm not sure when, exactly, the sparkles and the glitter balls started to linger after I looked away from them, 
nor when the music took on a faint echo effect. But when Stevie laughed at me right in the middle of a slow dance, without his mouth even moving, I knew something was definitely up. Just go with it. Just go with it. I heard him say it, but his lips were out of sync. I saw them form the shape for the laugh I had already heard. My boyfriend was on a visual tape delay. Happy thoughts, Brittany. You're spiking, just go with it. It'll calm down. His hands brushed my face. Jesus, you should see your eyes right now. And I did. I saw them reflected in his, until the reflection of them grew so large, his own eyes weren't even there anymore. Am I beautiful? Oh, yes. Oh yeah, you're fucking awesome, Brittany. Carissa and Mikey did win. Their names were read at 10.25, and they shared their moment on stage being crowned until 10.30. Their dance, during which time I could have sworn their long shadows on the floor twisted to their own strange erratic rhythms, took us to 10.40. I hugged them both, shared a wide-eyed laugh over nothing with Carissa, then cried with her. What's happening? She shook her head, the vibration of the motion rather fast and jerky, like she'd broken her neck and twitched from the injury. Yet she was still smiling, tears of joy damp on her cheeks. The trip did calm down, but when the next fast track came on, I found I had to sit. I'd caught myself passing my hands in front of my face too many times for it not to be obvious, watching them stretch out and trail over my line of sight like spreading paint. Just sit down. It'll pass. When I did, I saw Mrs. Gray taking her leave at the door, sharing a final word with Mr. Hennessy, who was young enough that he could easily have been mistaken for a student. I couldn't be sure all things considered, but it looked to me as though the cup in his hand was filled with red punch, not green. He was telling her it was okay. He had it covered. Don't leave. Something bad might happen. But she did leave. Why not? Just about everyone in the room, except maybe Diggs, was 18 years old, full-blown adults under law. No one had made any trouble, not even with Delaney Woodruff and the freak show and cufflinks and coattails. Hell, a lot of the kids had already left as well, some with dinner reservations at the nearby outback, others doubtless unnerved by the effect of the punch, the unexpected onslaught of the LSD. Now, time seemed to fast forward while I sat unattended at one of the tables near the ballot box. It was suddenly 11.30. The dance floor was still mostly full, even as the clock ticked on to 11.40, 11.50, 11.55. A collective gasp on the dance floor. An unfamiliar voice, 
too young for any of my friends. That's breakdancing? No, I'll show you breakdancing. And Stevie was dancing with someone else. A girl, but a girl wearing Diggory's clothes. They sagged off of her, several sizes too big for her. Her limbs bent in impossible directions, even as Delaney Woodruff twirled around them both, arms spread like the wings of an angel, her red satin dress lifting and floating like ocean waves of blood. The girl's arms hyperextended, then her knees, as she gyrated and twisted opposite Stevie on the dance floor. They crackled over the music, bones crunching and snapping. Her head went all the way over backwards, looking at me upside down over the top of her back. She laughed at me. I laughed back. This was so not like an ordinary pot high. This was unreal. Carissa screamed. Mikey uttered a half-strangled curse under his breath and ushered her away, right through the doors of the ballroom and out. The king and queen, it seemed, had abdicated. Others followed. I heard crying, swearing. At the tape table, Mr. Hennessy yawned, sipped some more punch. I went to them, to Stevie and the uninvited pixie contortionist who'd stepped in to fill in for me as his dance partner. And just who the fuck are you, pray tell? She spun away from him, disappearing in a blur of arms and legs, then reappearing in front of me as Diggory Addington, gold cufflinks and coattails and all. Stevie's bloodshot eyes, practically all pupils by now, he was so gone, widened with amusement, not fear. Behind them, the slow tolling of midnight as if the ordinary plastic analog clock on the wall was an amplified grandfather clock. Diggory took my hands, starting the same strange, up-temple waltz with me as he had with Delaney, who twirled around us, watching us, giggling. (laughs) He winked at me with a filmed-over eye of milky white, the scorched skin of his face hardly wrinkling. I was Diggory Ray Addington. I was apprentice to Fritz Herter, head janitor at the old Lakeview School in Collinwood, Ohio. He was unkind to me. On March 4th, 1908, when I was 16, I overheated the boiler in the basement and burned down the building. I killed them all. I killed myself, and I repent. Then he whirled away from me, rising half a foot from the ground, and fucking floated back to Stevie. But by the time he was there, he'd become the pixie girl contortionist again. She folded herself over him and wept, hanging from his shoulders, clinging like a four-legged spider heaving and panting. I was Chelsea May Smith. They made me work in the factories 
14 hours a day. On December 15th, 1910, I jumped from the fifth story window and I repent. The fuck you do? Get the fuck off me. Demon ass monster fucking bitch. Jesus, what the fuck are you? And he threw her a full three feet or more from himself. There she hung, suspended in midair, her face upturned to the ceiling, both laughing and crying, limbs dangling. Everywhere, screams. Girls and boys stampeding for the door. Almost everyone in the ballroom jolted to their flight instinct by reflex. Only a few, maybe ten all told, counting myself, remained fixed where we were. At the tape table, Mr. Hennessy slumped forward, murmuring to himself. And there he lost consciousness completely, the punch cup spilling from his hand, a thin pink froth dribbling from his lips. Stevie lurched forward, stopping half a foot from the phantom suspended in space. What did you do to him, you fucker? I? Nothing. That was Mary Beth. Didn't you see her? Oh, I suppose not. What what are you? Answer me, bitch! I am one. She bent double at the spine, bones crackling, until she looked up at him again between her own knees. One of one thousand. The voice came from a multitude, but also from her. I could hear Diggory in that voice, and others. Too many others. Delaney strode to the punch table, drew a chair up in front of it, and then a second. Sat with her hands on her lap. And for the first time I'd ever seen in the time I'd known her, she smiled. Chelsea straightened herself. Stood up properly, feet on the floor. Again, she changed. Her hair receded, darkening. She grew, widening at the hips and shoulders. She became male again. A boy like Diggory, but not burned like him. The figure standing before us had tousled black hair, perfect blue eyes. He filled the suit jacket perfectly, too. Compared to the others, he was, well, normal. Stevie stepped back. I took his hand. We could have run. We probably should have. But we, and a small handful of our friends, remained in the ballroom until it was all over. We saw everything. We did nothing to stop it. The new phantom ran his hands down his jacket front smoothing it, passed a hand through his hair, sniffed the rose at his lapel. I was Alice to Charles Hutchinson. I was lonely. I loved a girl, but that love was not returned. In June 1912, when I was 15, I hanged myself. And I repent. He shook his head, chuckling to himself. (laughs) There. 
Are you happy? I said it this time. I'm being a good boy tonight. Was this from the LSD? Was I imagining it? Stevie and I, and all of those others still here, surrounded him in a circle. Were we all sharing in the same hallucination? That's impossible. This is real. Oh my god, this is really happening. Then he addressed us for the first time, taking us in. Why, hello. I apologize for the disturbance. Please, do not look so concerned or offended. Do not be afraid. We have no accounts to settle here tonight. Not while Delaney Woodruff yet lives. We have come only to move the line, to set Diggory free, and Delaney as well. Delaney, are you ready? I am. Please, help me, Alistair. Call her back. Bring Mary Beth back. Alistair went to her, pausing only when the circle tightened in on him just as he was about to break it. Listen, I recommend you let me pass. If you do, soon we will be gone. If you do not, I will pick just one of you, remove your head, and shove it up your dance partner's ass. The circle made way for him. He passed. Settled down in the chair at the punch bowls next to Delaney. He changed again. He became a little girl, blonde and frail, pale-skinned and withered. Delaney took one of her bony little hands. With the other, the waif named Mary Beth dunked a finger into the bowl of green punch and stirred slowly. Quietly, she uttered her repentance. Then she leaned over the bowl and opened her mouth drooling a bright green line of spittle directly into it. That's it. Come on, Brent, we're fucking gone. Now. I didn't argue. Outside in the parking lot, it seemed not everyone had gone after all. There remained a fair crowd, actually. A couple dozen guys and gals who, collectively, seemed to be waiting for something. Or someone. Harley Stoneburner made a shushing gesture at me as soon as we were among them. Gary Conway pulled Stevie away from me, whispered something to him I couldn't hear. He held a tire iron in his right hand. And Stevie nodded. No! I lunged for him, wanting to tear him away, to hustle him out of here. What we needed to do was call the police, and an ambulance for Mr. Hennessy. Anything else was bullshit at best, and at worst, completely insane. But my girlfriends held me, as the confessions continued inside the ballroom, dim murmuring I seemed only to hear in my mind. Harley kept her hand over my mouth, while Courtney and Dawn held my arms. I found myself swallowed up in a crowd of no fewer than ten of them, 
all grimly determined to see this through, to keep me from fucking it up. And Stevie did nothing but play along as the doors opened again. I only saw them together, one last time, for a hot second. Diggory and Delaney at the threshold of the doorway. She lay in his arms, breathing shallowly, her skin ashen, but not yet dead. I do believe that Diggory and all the demons that lived inside of him were taken by total surprise. If they hadn't been, things might have worked out differently. I don't know. I couldn't see much as my friends, classmates, my brothers and sisters of the class of 88, wrenched Delaney from the unknown thing that was Diggory Addington and converged on him, pummeling him, beating him, shouting at him. They never hurt Delaney. They didn't have to. Someone set her off to the side on a raised grass median between two of their cars, as the rest of them attacked a monster none of us understood. It, meanwhile, continued the repentance ritual, changing form, changing voice, lamenting the final sin of a fourth soul and a fifth, on and on, as I stood trapped in the background and wailed and cried and struggled uselessly to break free and stop it. Distantly, sirens. Someone, thank God, had had the common sense to call the police. At the last, the crowd parted. My girlfriends let me go. I'll never, never forget Stevie's voice that final time. At half past midnight at the acid light dance, I heard his mind break, utterly. What is it? 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 It was a mound of half-formed and constantly changing bodies. Limbs, torsos, heads, all pulsating, drenched in blood emerging and retreating back to the shapeless host, heaving like a single organism, scrabbling at the ground, blindly trying to get away, until, lying forgotten on the parking lot median, Delaney Woodruff, quietly and without complaint, exhaled her dying breath. and appeared as one of the heads inside the flailing and suffering host. Get away from us. So help me, I will kill you all. We ran, even as the sirens drew closer and closer. never came for me, the creature that called an end to prom night when I was 18. The police did. So did the FBI, less than a week later. There was a dead teacher and a dead teenage girl, 
and someone had to account for that. Arrests were made, but none of them stuck. No one but us kids had seen the host body of spirits who claimed Delaney Woodruff that night. And none of us, so far as the authorities could pin down, had done any physical harm to her. Also, no one gave much of a shit about her, even in death. Except for me. I've been mourning her ever since. I've prayed for forgiveness every night. Not for prom night, but for every day and night, going back four years, that led up to it. I was the monster, and so were my friends. Many of whom, I have to add, are now dead. Strange accidents, all unrelated. Stevie Harker hasn't spoken a word in 31 years. I hear he's back on solid food now, though. Good for him. Maybe he'll get better one day. Maybe I will, too. I'm almost there. I'm good enough to have gotten married anyway. Had a few kids of my own. I'm sending my last to her own prom tonight. She's so beautiful. So sweet. And she's a good person. Better than I was. I've done everything I can to raise her and my other kids right. Their father is a good man. There's a car pulling up outside. Excellent timing. It's time for me to see my daughter off. To pray for her safety. To ask God for forgiveness again. Because I now know what I didn't understand when I was 18. That the choices we make every day are matters of life and death. I blew it big time when I was a kid. And I repent. Breakthroughs in movie technology are always exciting. From 3D films to IMAX to fully immersive theatrical experiences. It's no wonder that this gentleman would jump at the chance to be involved when he's invited to test out an up-and-coming film company's new cinema technique. But in this tale, shared with us by author Lex Bradley, we learn that some offers are too good to be true. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Addison Peacock, and Mick Wingert. So if even the survey to take part in an offer sets off alarm bells, maybe you should trust your gut. Otherwise, you might find yourself at the mercy of Mobius Films. Have you ever noticed how you can see in the dark much better than a camera? How even movies with multi-million dollar budgets must artificially light scenes shot in dark places 
just to vaguely simulate what it actually feels like to look around in a dark environment. When I was in the third grade, my teacher assigned us to fill out a survey sent to the school by an up-and-coming film company. She told us that if we met the criteria they're looking for, that we might be selected to be part of a test screening for an exciting new technique in film. I remember the survey was fairly rigorous and contained questions that, even at the time, were inappropriate for a bunch of third graders. Are both of your parents alive? And do you believe in hell are the ones that stand out most in my memory? But I answered honestly, because as an only child with very few friends and not much to do besides watch movies, there was nothing that could have excited me more. It was months later, in the middle of the summer, that my parents got the letter that I'd been chosen to participate in the screening. The letter promised a private movie theater for our group, free food and drink, and a limousine ride there and back. My mother was very reluctant. She didn't approve of the time that the event was taking place, 11 p.m. on a Wednesday night. Eventually, though, I was able to convince her by using chores as a bartering chip. I remember how excited I was when the black limo pulled up outside my house. The driver stepped out, dressed in a black suit and bowler hat, nearly invisible against the surface of the limousine, except for his pallid skin. He flashed an odd grin and opened the door for me. He said nothing as I stepped in, just closed the door behind me. The matted velvet interior smelled of cigarette smoke and the carpeting and seats were covered in a variety of stains and burns. No expenses spared, clearly. I sat down after locating the least unpleasant seat and took the ticket out of my pocket, having cut it from the letter. It read, Ouroboros Cinema. Admit one, seat number six. We got on the highway and rode for about 40 minutes before turning off an exit and driving into an unfamiliar backwoods town. Before long, we were headed down a dirt road surrounded on all sides by trees and overgrowth. The vehicle was groaning and shuddering in protest of being driven down the uneven terrain. A short while later, we stopped in front of a white, single-story building, looking absurdly modern juxtaposed against the surrounding wilderness. In front of its entrance was a man dressed in a red and gold usher's coat, the kind you'd see from old Hollywood films at the Chinese theater. The driver opened the door for me and I stepped out. I walked up to the doorman and presented my ticket to him. He took it silently, tore it, and handed it back. It's funny how when you're a child, you don't pick up on the subtle cues that would tell an adult that there's something wrong with a situation. I walked into what was clearly intended to be an office building, hastily modified to resemble a theater. There were lights strung up in clear rubber tubes lining the baseboards down the halls, which were carpeted with old black theater carpeting, the kind with the confetti designs standing out starkly against the clinical white walls. The concession stand was just the reception desk with concession stand printed out in Comic Sans on a piece of computer paper and taped to the counter. Atop the counter were 12 bags of popcorn and 12 cups of off-brand soda. Seeing no one else around but myself and remembering that the letter had promised free concessions, I grabbed my popcorn and soda and took a seat in the lobby and waited for the others to show up. The popcorn was stale and the off-brand cola was lukewarm and had a copper taste like an old penny. I looked for a garbage can but found none, so I continued eating out of boredom. I explored the building a bit, not that there was much to it. Every door in the place was locked save for the bathrooms. Gradually, people began to file in and introduce themselves. There was a 50-50 split between girls and boys from a wide variety of nationalities. 
The final person to walk in was a girl I recognized from school. She introduced herself as Ashley. No one was talking much, so I went over to her and we spoke briefly about how strange it was. It just seems weird. Did you notice that all the windows are black? At first I thought it was because it's dark outside, but even the mirrors in the bathrooms are black like that. Did you see what- Attention patrons. The time is now 12.25. The film will be starting in five minutes. Please make your way to the screening room and sit in your assigned seats. And so we did. The room down the hall marked screening room was now unlocked. We stepped into what looked like a modified meeting room and found our chairs in front of the screen, which was about a quarter the size of a regular theater screen and glass instead of the usual projector display. I sat next to Ashley, who noted that the walls in the room were entirely covered in the same black panels she observed earlier. I commented that she was right, adding that the room we were in seemed to have a noticeably higher ceiling than what the outside of the building should have allowed. Everyone had been seated for no more than a few minutes when we heard the doorman clear his throat. He was standing in the doorway, his eyes scanning the room from one corner to the next before closing the door behind him. He began his speech as he walked, lurched more than walked honestly, to the front of the room, every step deliberate and seemingly painful. His voice was robotic and forced with no intonation or natural cadence. What you are about to see has never before been witnessed by the public. It is a highly experimental technique, which is sure to have some kinks that need working out. And as such, please do not be alarmed if at first your brain has trouble processing some of what you'll perceive. We've included a short video at the beginning of the presentation to help calibrate your mind and properly attenuate your senses to the film. Silence throughout this picture is mandatory, and at the first sound, you will be removed from the building. Are there any questions? We were all silent. After too long of a pause, he made his way back out into the hall and slammed the door behind him, leaving us in darkness. It was incredible how dark it was in the room. And when it was just on the verge of being frightening, the screen flickered on. There were bold black letters on a white background that read, Begin Calibration. We were then assaulted with strobing colors and high-pitched shrieks, followed by tones so low I felt them more than heard them. This went on for about two minutes, and then the screen faded to blackness. What happened next is difficult to describe, because it shouldn't have been able to happen. The screen was no longer using light to display images, but darkness. It was as if it was somehow manipulating my eyes into doing what they were never meant to do. And the shock of it made one child in the audience wretch. Let me be clear, it was pitch black in that room, and I couldn't even see the people around me, but the screen was displaying images. My memory of exactly what the footage showed is hazy, as I spent a lot of my adolescence trying to block it out, so I'll just have to recount it as best I can. It began with a young man, walking through a trailer park, looking around as if to find something. There were pigs everywhere rooting through the garbage and wallowing in filth. And it was then that I realized the second impossible facet of the film. They were clearly pigs. I could see them plain as day. But every bit as clearly, I saw them as people, nude and obese, walking around on all fours like beasts covered from head to toe in sweat and excrement. 
Again, it's impossible to convey the images exactly as they were since our minds weren't meant to be able to process such things. Eventually the man, following a winding stream of what looked like viscous tar, found his way to a dilapidated trailer where he met a very beautiful woman. They chatted briefly before she pushed him to the floor and climbed on top of him. Now, to my young brain, seeing graphic sex was every bit as mind-destroying as what preceded it, so I can't be entirely sure of what happened. All I remember was at the very same time I could see them passionately making love, I could also see two enormous cockroaches, one mounted atop the other, antenna feeling blindly and silently in the darkness, in stark contrast to the moaning ecstasy of the lovers. And yes, I could perceive both the sound and the lack thereof simultaneously. And as before, there's really no way I can convey how it felt. Mercifully, the scene changed to something else, but I can't recall what it was. I feel as if it involved footage of people crawling through claustrophobic mazes constructed from slippery rubber tubing, but I can't be sure. The next thing I remember clearly were three bald men in business suits, sitting in folding chairs and facing the camera. As the camera slowly zoomed in closer, I saw strange symbols covering the exposed portions of their bodies, recently branded into their flesh. They stared directly ahead for a while, before the central figure produced a thin, delicate blade from inside his jacket and began to carve himself down the center. He did not bleed. He cut a vertical line from underneath his chin down to just below his navel. And after inserting fingers on either side of his now separated sternum, pulled himself open in one swift motion. Instead of this being the gory mess it should have been, what was revealed was far worse. There's nothing inside of him. And I don't mean this in the sense that he was hollow, however much I wish it had been so. In one immeasurably long instant, I realized what I was seeing, as buried and forgotten memories of non-existence interlocked to reveal the true image of a grisly jigsaw puzzle. It was the abyss, cold, primal emptiness itself, an endless void housed inside his chest cavity, roiling and shrieking as the two men seated behind him were consumed along with the rest of the room. Before I could even process it, the camera was zooming in on the vacuity before it, closer and closer until the screen was consumed in it, but it didn't stop. The hideous absence was billowing outside the threshold of the screen, filling the room like a thick and malevolent smog, bringing with it all the sounds of damnation, waves of noise that were too loud for the human ear to handle. I think I heard the screams of those next to me, though it's hard to say whether it was them or the hellish groaning of the vacuum. I awoke slumped over in my seat, my head in my lap. I got up, unable to hear through the ringing pulse in my head. I saw through blurred vision that the screen was now destroyed, a chair having been thrown into the glass. I stumbled over to the light switch and turned it on, looking around at everyone. I counted 10 people. Five were unconscious. Two girls were sobbing in each other's arms, and two teenage boys were standing in the center of the room, disoriented and violently arguing. Ashley was lying on the floor, staring at a fixed point on the ceiling and blinking occasionally. We were missing a person. I'd like to say I stayed and tried to work something out or tried to help the other kids. Maybe figure out who was missing and possibly find them, but I didn't. I ran outside as fast as I ever have in my life. Back down the path the limo had driven. 
Before reaching the tree line, I looked back toward the building where the usher had been. There was now a crude mannequin-like figure, arms and hands rigidly pressed against its sides, with legs together and toes pointed downward, levitating about a foot off the ground. It was dressed in the same red and gold clothing as the usher. My mind stopped momentarily as I added all the details together. But before I could fully take it in, the being began to float toward me, its body perfectly stiff and unmoving. It looked like a marionette suspended in the air, seemingly manipulating the earth below it to pull me closer to the figure's fixed point in space, more so than the thing truly being in motion toward me. The effect was nauseating. At that point, I ran blindly down the road, lungs burning intensely without looking back. I used the feeling of the gravel beneath my feet to find my way down the lightless path, with ditches of thorns on either side to correct my steps when needed. I emerged half an hour or so later, found a gas station and called home. My mother was understandably panicked but didn't question me before hanging up. After that point, I don't remember much. I remember lying and saying that the event hadn't gone very well and that the vehicle scheduled to pick us up had mechanical issues, and that if we wanted to get home at a decent time, we would have to get someone else to get us. I remember thinking I was in the clear for a while, maybe even naive enough to write off the event as a bad dream. But then I started watching movies again. It was subtle at first. Nothing I couldn't write off as an out-of-focus figure here or there. Gradually, though, it became obvious. The mannequin things were in the background of every damn movie I watched, posed always with their arms straight down and bodies perfectly still, feet never touching the ground, silently gliding across the backdrops unnoticed by everyone except myself. They were dressed like people, sure, but how could anyone be so stupid as to mistake them for actual human beings? Yet regular actors would interact with them, chatting them up at parties, walking side by side with them, and in one particularly absurd instance, shooting pool in a bar with one of them, while the pool cue animatedly floated in the empty space between its arm and torso. There's two of them in Forrest Gump floating down the street as Jenny contemplates leaving out the window. Three in Apocalypse Now during the Doe Lung Bridge scene. Twelve in various spots in Back to the Future. One in the trees in The Wizard of Oz. And too damn many to count in every last Kubrick film. The list goes on. I've tried showing people, but no one else notices them. Not in the same way I do, anyway. They'll detect something off about the person. Maybe they're a bit blurry, have jerky movements, or are oddly proportioned, but normal people can't see their true forms like I can. I don't know what they are, if they have a plan or any motivation for their existence. However, I do know that modern movies have a whole lot more in them. There were barely any actual people in last year's releases I saw, and I'm not just talking about extras. These things have started taking on lead roles, filmed with the finest cameras available, mere feet away, emitting a distinct and horrifyingly familiar shrieking noise, where everyone else just hears the actors speaking their lines.
Every small town has that one guy, a larger-than-life character who everyone knows and tolerates, if not loves. Christopher's town has one, a man who travels around the town taking photographs, always accompanied by his pet rodent. Strange, yet harmless. But in this tale, shared with us by author L.P. Hernandez, we're reminded that no matter how familiar you might think you are with someone, there's always something more to discover about them. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Jeff Clement, Kyle Akers, Matthew Bradford, and Addison Peacock. So remember, it's okay to turn down an invitation from someone you don't know that well, especially if they're the town's eccentric. Otherwise, you might find yourself in the domain of the Rat King. There were many questions we never asked about him, Rat King. His name, for one thing. He was Rat King for the most obvious reason you could guess. He ferried a pet rat, often curled into a slumbering ball in the slope of his neck everywhere he went. Affixed to the rodent's head was a tiny felt crown fit for a king. As a society, we have decided to sidestep the topic of mental health like a splatter of red vomit on the sidewalk. Best not to ask questions. Hopefully, it was just tomato soup. I did not know the Rat King's specific affliction. No one in town was interested in exploring the topic. My father suggested that, though he was harmless, it was best to keep a respectful distance. Rat King was background noise throughout my childhood, pedaling up to the group of my friends on his bicycle, brandishing a camera. We posed with our tongues out or flashing the peace sign. He would snap a few pictures while saying, Cheese! in that high-pitched voice of his. I doubted there was actually film in the camera. As far as quirks go, it seemed harmless enough. He was a fixture of the town like the broken fountain on Main Street, filled with leaves and murky water. Forgotten, but ever-present. As a boy of twelve, Rat King quite literally towered over me. I was small for a twelve-year-old, and he was large for a man of any age. Another of his quirks, and equally harmless, was his love of candy. Its effect on his body was evident both in his considerable bulk and haphazard arrangement of brown teeth in his mouth. He smiled often, and without reservation, despite the fact that he looked as though he had always just finished chewing a Tootsie Roll. It was the week of Halloween. The rain that threatened to thwart my trick-or-treating goals finally dissipated. The steel-gray clouds bringing misery and dashed hopes to the kids on the East Coast. I walked out of the school well after the last bus left, having endured an additional hour of in-school suspension. Mrs. Duffy, my homeroom teacher, was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. Her hair was candy apple red and smelled as sweet. Unlike most teachers in the school, her profession was not evident in the clothes she wore. Mrs. Kimball, my math teacher, wore a vest with cartoon rulers on it every other day. Mr. Martin likely kept the novelty tie business afloat with his various science-themed accoutrements. 
but not Mrs. Duffy. My suspension was strategic, as I knew she had that specific duty that day. My hope that we would spend the hour alone was realized. I gripped the handlebars of my bike, mind recalling the errant glimpse of Mrs. Duffy's emerald green bra as she kneeled to retrieve her purse. I did not hear Rat King approach, and nearly screamed when he barked his greeting at me. Hello, friend! He snapped a picture. I lowered my arms, which had been shielding my face. Oh, hello. It's almost Halloween. <laughs> yes, I can't wait. He snaked his plump thumbs behind the straps of his overalls. The rat on his shoulder walked in a small circle and resumed its nap, its crown canted to the side. Is this one new? Rat King frowned, not understanding my meaning for a moment. Hmm? Oh, him? He's the new Rat King. You don't even have a tail. <laughs> I needed to make it home within the next 15 minutes to arrive there before my dad. Otherwise, I'd be forced to explain the in-school suspension. Cool. Well, have a great day. Rat King dismounted his bike and sprinted, much faster than I would have given him credit for, to me. I was eye-level with his chest as he spoke. Oh, I'm having a haunted house for Halloween. You have to come. You have to. Last year, nobody came, and I waited all night. His face wilted. There was no effect to his words. They were a bit soft around the edges, but wholly coherent. Well... You have to come. I got all the stuff for it. Promise me you will. He clasped his hands together as if in prayer. His padded knuckles, browned by the sun, hovered over my head. Knotted together, they were the size of a small cantaloupe. Rat King closed his eyes and mouthed the word please in rapid succession. I quickly glanced up and down the street and saw no outlet for escape. Okay, I'll go. <laughs> he cheered, thrusting his fists in the air. The rat that had been sleeping on his shoulder buried its claws into the denim of his overalls, its eyes frantic. I'm gonna go work on it some more. I got all the stuff. Then he ran back to his bike. I soon forgot about my obligation, distracted by the lure of Halloween, and then Christmas just over the horizon. During the school day, I invented a future in which Mrs. Duffy and I were in love. That night, I finalized the trick-or-treat route with my friends. Rat King was not in my thoughts as Josh, Zach, and I began our pursuit of candy that day. We coordinated our costumes, hoping their kitschy appeal might inspire generosity among the houses we visited. Josh went as takeout Chinese food. Zach was a fortune cookie. I was a bottle of soy sauce. You're sure these aren't racist? I shot Josh a look as we left my house, empty pillowcases flapping in the wind. Well, I'm like half Chinese, so it's okay. Next year we're going as Mexican food then. Zach scrunched up his face. That's fair, but what about me? How about mayonnaise, uh, white cheddar macaroni and cheese, and skim milk? Okay, now that's racist. 
The sun descended towards snow-dusted peaks of the Rocky Mountains to the west, casting gossamer shadows behind us. Clusters of children darted past, most accompanied by adults transfixed by their cell phones. A small boy dressed as a cat hissed as we approached, twirling his tail and curling his fingers into claws. His zombie companion gave us a good-humored shrug, a girl I thought I recognized from school. It's his first time. The cat high-fived us as we passed. By the end of the second hour, our bloated trick-or-treat bags floated an inch or two above the concrete. Josh, who had worn his father's dress shoes, limped as the stiff material abraded his heels. There was a hint of chill in the air, the onset of autumn one frosty morning away. One by one, the porch lights extinguished just as the street lights turned on, collecting hordes of anxious moths. I think I'm about done. Me too. Good haul this year. My eyes were drawn to the light a few houses away from where we stood. It was only then I realized which street I was on. The house had been in a perpetual state of disrepair as long as I could remember. Ivy snaked across its wooden facade, gradually shifting the color of the house from white to forest green. There was a lone figure there, seated on the steps leading to the porch. Oh, shit. What is it? Rat King. He asked if I would visit his haunted house tonight. And you said yes? Didn't have much of a choice at the time. Eh, Count me out. I was supposed to be home a half hour ago. My mom's gonna beat the mayonnaise out of me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gone too. My socks feel wet and I don't think it's sweat. Josh grimaced at his shoes. They inspected their hall as they walked away, leaving me alone in the phosphorescent wash of a streetlight. Crickets screeched as I shuffled my feet, a rush of windborne leaves skittering past. Rat King's head sank beneath the weight of his sorrow. It was nearly full dark and there were no potential customers for his homemade haunted house. This'll be quick. Another thing I did not know about Rat King was his living situation. I was aware of the fact that his parents had passed away, perhaps many years before my birth. Rat King had a sort of youthful exuberance about him that distracted from the sprout of fine lines at the corners of his eyes and flecks of silver at his temples. I didn't know how old he was or how long he had been living alone. And whatever his handicap was, he did live alone, subsisting off his inheritance and government assistance, I would imagine. I leaned against the white picket fence, the paint peeled away in long strips, giving it the appearance of stripes. In the yard, which was recently mowed for likely the first time that year, were various dollar store props. There was a cemetery of styrofoam tombstones with pun-infused poems. Cardboard cutouts of movie monsters leered from a patch of grass between the large oak tree that dominated the yard and the sidewalk. Clumps of wispy cotton adorned the bushes in an artless fashion, indicating Rat King's impatience at setting up his little haunted house. Am I too late? His rat wore both its crown and a fur-trimmed robe. His face quivered into a hopeful smile. He wiped his meaty arm across his nose. No, you can come. Do you want to see? As he stood, 
He nearly punted the tiny boombox blaring spooky noises into the yard. Of course. I walked through the gate. Rat King wore a carnival barker outfit, which was probably the largest size of the costume offered, but still too small for him. The buttons of his striped shirt strained against the thrust of his belly, like a brittle dam holding back a river. The slacks ended a few inches shy of his shoes. He slipped into character. <clears throat> come one, come all. See the greatest haunted house on Lotus Lane. He gestured to the open door, and I walked into the house. I expected more dollar store crap. Perhaps a bowl of eyes that were really grapes, brains that were really spaghetti. I stood in the entryway, which had not been decorated for the holiday. It was bare, except for a small table that held a bowl of keys. Yes, this really is something. You will be so scared, Christopher. Rat closed the door behind him. He flipped the porch light off, and I cocked an eyebrow. So we're not interrupted. He winked. I did not immediately notice the shift in his language skills, but the sound of his voice was different, lower, more fitting a man of his size. I glanced through the entryways into other rooms. Where is it? Before we begin, I took the funniest picture of you the other day. Do you want to see it? Um, sure. He took the lead and I followed behind. I peeked into the living room and saw that it was well furnished with modern fixtures, including a flat screen television mounted on the wall. If I anticipated anything, it would have been a fat back TV, something his deceased parents purchased from Sears in another decade. There were no cheap decorations, nothing to indicate that it was Halloween. We walked down a darkened hallway. The sound of his shoes like minor explosions in the stillness of the house. The fine hairs along my neck pressed against the rough fabric of my costume. The hallway seemed to extend forever, and Rat King became a silhouette of man-sized smoke. Oh, it's really something. <laughs> he indicated the door at the end of the hallway. I looked over my shoulder. Difficult task in such a cumbersome costume. The front door was miles away. After you. He nodded, flashed his chocolate teeth, and opened the door. Quick. We stood in a room that was completely dark save for a single bulb off to the side. I squinted, searching for meaning in the black shapes. He closed the door and stood behind me. His sour breath washed over my neck. It smelled of peppermints and nougat, but with an acidic tinge. What is this place? I retreated a step and collided with his massive body. I began to turn, but he stopped the motion, gripping my shoulders through the costume. It's a dark room. It's where I develop my pictures. He gave me a little push. I stumbled forward but stopped as soon as I was able. The candy in my belly floated on a rising tide of digestive juices. His vernacular mirrored mine, the voice at its much lower natural octave. 
Grab those two pictures hanging there. You're going to be so surprised. His breath was hot in my ear. I shuffled forward, my fingers flexing into useless fists. I sensed him tracking behind me with each step. There were two black and white pictures hanging from a line above a tub filled with some solution. Above it was an amber bulb that cast a pool of reddish light. I retrieved the first picture and held it under the light. (laughs) That's you, standing in the bushes outside your teacher's house. Isn't that funny? The picture shook and stomach juices coated the back of my throat. This isn't... I... 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 I thought it was funny. Look what you're doing in that picture. Funny how I saw you, but you didn't see me. Grab the other picture. You're going to love it. His hands gripped my shoulders again and squeezed like pincers. That brief effort demanded little of his strength, but made my knees weak from pain. I plucked the other picture from the line. You left before it got interesting. That's some teacher of yours. I understand why you want to stay after school with her. The picture was through the blinds, the same I had peeped through that evening. Mrs. Duffy stood naked, her back to the camera, with a towel wrapped around her head. I wasn't looking. I wasn't. I wasn't. He squeezed again and pressed my face into my elbow as my stomach lurched. Even if you weren't, out of context it looks pretty bad, right? You know what else looks bad out of context? I shook my head. He relieved the pressure on my left shoulder for a moment and handed me two more photographs. I recognized myself in the first image. I was a year or so younger judging by the haircut which had changed since then. I held a rock in the air, my attention directed at something below me not captured in the picture. Look at the next one. It was a baby bird. Its head smashed, the contents expelled like an exploded grape. No, no! The bird was injured! It was being eaten alive by ants! I did this to save it! Hmm, maybe. Now, you can probably bounce back from the Peeping Tom pictures. You'd be surprised how common a pastime that is in this town. (laughs) But, uh, killing little animals... Christopher, that really is surprising. But I was trying to help it. But probably true, and I, and I don't judge you for it, even if you weren't. You know, I have some very interesting pictures of your father when he was about your age. Very similar in nature. I don't know if he was trying to help, though. I shook my head, not understanding. My eyes, now adjusted to the dark, scanned the room. There were no fine details, but I saw dozens, perhaps hundreds of pictures hanging from lines along the walls of the room. Oh, it's not so bad, Christopher. I have lots of pictures of people doing surprising things. Tell you what, you could keep that picture of your teacher. I have my own copy. 
I knew he was smiling when he said these words. I imagined his stained teeth and shuddered, knowing I was alone in the dark with them. What do you want from me? That comes later. This is a haunted house, remember? I wasn't lying about that. Although, you might think of it more as a, a modern art piece. Let's go upstairs. His heavy hands led me to the door. The murky hallway light was painfully bright. He shoved me again and my weakened legs gave out. The pillowcase with my Halloween haul fell to the floor, some of the candy spilling free. Uh, sorry about that, Christopher. Sometimes I don't know my own strength. Just leave the candy. Rat King hoisted me back up to a standing position. He guided me to the stairs with gentler pushes. I gazed up into darkness, fear blanking my mind of any thoughts. Up you go, Christopher. He flipped a light switch on, and the darkness retreated. The stairs squeaked beneath my weight and shrieked beneath his. People call me the Rat King. Isn't that right, Christopher? I did not reply. I don't mind the name. It's better than Francis. But did you know that Rat Kings are a real thing? When groups of rats live in tight quarters, their tails may become intertwined. This can be aided with the addition of some sticky materials, sap, or syrup. Rats aren't the cleanest of animals. The tails form a giant knot, and the rats, they eventually starve. Well, they, they don't starve right away. The rats will eat their neighbors until there's nothing left to eat. We reached the second level of the house, which offered doors on either side of a long hallway. He moved me to the side and stood before a nondescript door. Now, there are many examples in nature. Some reported sightings and a dozen or so mummified specimens. But you don't need nature to produce a rat king. If the tails are long enough, you could tie them together like shoelaces. They might have to rupture some tendons, but, uh, <laughs> they're just rats. He shielded his mouth as if telling a secret. I smelled it then. The feces and urine. He opened the door, releasing a tidal wave of putrescence. <laughs> I turned my head and vomited on the wall, red from the candy apple I could not resist eating earlier that evening. Rat King frowned. I'll just leave it. I'll scoop it up and feed it to the rats later. That'll be a treat for them. <laughs> they love candy, too. He gripped my shoulder and pulled me into the room which was alive with squeaks and movement. There were 40 or so glass enclosures, rats of various sizes within. Look on the table there. That one is fresh, only a month or so old. Oh, it was fascinating to watch. There was a table in the center of the room and a mass of fur on its surface. I approached, seeing no other option. I tie them together, you see. It's a bit messy. They shouldn't piss on me. They bite, but I wear gloves. Then I watch. Sometimes it takes days. Sometimes weeks. Sometimes they scurry around as a unit. 
looking for food. But I don't feed them. Soon enough, they realize the only food available is directly in front of them. They always go for the brains. Maybe as a mercy. It's a quick death, except for the burrowing into the skull part. I held my hand to my belly, which undulated with nausea. There were nine rats, some partially eviscerated. Their tails were clumped together in an intricate knot. An additional tail, not connected to a rat carcass, jutted from the cluster. Uh, Philip was a bit of a cheater, but he survived. Chewed through his own tail. Can you believe that? Killed the rat in front of him first, though. Regardless, he survived, and that makes him the king. Rat King nuzzled the animal on his shoulder and adjusted its crown. After doing this with rats for so long, I began to wonder, is it possible with people? What if I broke their legs just so? Could I tie them together like rat tails? I don't know. <laughs> well, well, your father has been helping me figure it out. Very fortunate that he has that hospital job. I have so many surprising pictures of your father. <laughs> to see what I've come up with so far? It's only a prototype, and ooh, it smells awful, but I'd love to show it to you. He pointed across the room. The canvas material was draped over a strange shape with odd angles. There were brown blotches where whatever the shape was pressed against the canvas. No, please don't. Had enough? Yeah, I understand it's a lot to take in. Let's head downstairs and uh, discuss the terms of our arrangement. Rat King led me out of the room, and I jogged down the stairs on spongy legs. He thundered behind me, testing the strength of the wood with each step. You're young, Christopher. So tonight's tribute will be easy. Just leave your Halloween candy. That's it. Tribute? We stood at the base of the stairs. He slapped a frying pan-sized hand on my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, that's what I call him. I am the king, after all. I get lots of tributes. I have so many surprising pictures. The knot in my stomach loosened. If I escaped the house only having sacrificed my candy, I would consider myself lucky. He squeezed my shoulder again. I imagined his thumb and index finger bursting through the skin and connecting within. Uh, next week, though, uh, I want something uh, different. Did you know that the window to your teacher's house was unlocked? I'm too big to get inside, but uh, you aren't. Oh, she's a beautiful woman, Christopher. She's really something. For next week's tribute, I want you to bring me something of hers. Something worn. I think you know what I mean. If they're stained, even better. He licked his lips. I... I can't. But you can, Christopher. If you can smash a baby bird with a rock, you can sneak into your teacher's bedroom and take a souvenir... Take one for yourself. 
drop them off next Friday at 10 o'clock. I, uh, <laughs> I think you know what'll happen if you don't. He gestured toward the dark room. My mind reeled as we walked to the front door, his hand on my shoulder the entire time. I was exhausted from the spikes of adrenaline. He stopped me and lifted my chin. Our eyes met. You know something interesting about Halloween, Christopher? Some people wear costumes every day of the year. Retrieving Rat King's souvenir was easier than I might have guessed. I won't lie and suggest it wasn't thrilling in addition. I snuck out of the house that Friday night, a tribute in a sandwich bag in the pocket of my jeans. I shivered against the chilly wind, the Indian summer, a distant memory. As I approached Rat King's house, I saw a familiar vehicle parked on the street. I hid behind the bushes of a neighboring house. My father pulled an oversized cooler from the trunk of his car. It was too heavy to carry, so he dragged it behind him. He looked up and down the street, but didn't see me. Rat King opened the front door, and my father entered the home, lugging his tribute behind him. In our final tale, we meet Jack, a man who's found some temp work at a warehouse. And not only has he landed a job, but he's made a friend there too, Frank. However, it soon becomes clear that Frank isn't well, and the medical prognosis is pretty grim. But in this tale, shared with us by author Ryan Peacock, we find out that his fate wasn't as certain as we thought when Frank returns to work the picture of health. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Jesse Cornett, and Nicole Doolin. So how did Frank defeat the odds and conquer his illness? That's what Jack wants to know. But perhaps he'll regret asking when he finds out the extremes Frank went to to become the man who cheated the devil. Have you ever been down to Brantford? It's not a bad place to live, although there honestly isn't that much to see. So much is just abandoned or so old you can't ever imagine what it was like when it was new. It doesn't really feel like a city, more like a small town that got too big for the town label. Most of the places that hire are warehouses, and even then, they tend to go through the temp agencies rather than actually hire people. It's easier to get rid of them when you don't need them anymore that way. I don't know how many people are stuck bouncing from temp job to temp job. I only put up with it since, at the time, I was a 19-year-old kid, just happy to get some work. Most of it was in warehouses or factories. I preferred the warehouses. 
Less risk of losing a finger on some machine just because they couldn't be bothered to actually train you. It was one of the warehouses where I met Frank. He was one of the full-time employees at this place called Coleman's. It was pretty small by warehouse standards and easy to miss. I suppose it didn't help that the area surrounding it was full of rundown buildings that had fallen into disrepair. They mostly stored sporting equipment, brought in from Indonesia or Thailand. And some of the boxes there were pretty old, with thick layers of black dust on them. Frank once told me he'd been there about ten years, and the place had been just as dead and run down even back then. He had no idea how old it actually was, and there was only him and the owner of the place as the actual full-time employees. Whenever things got busier than usual, they just brought on a couple of temps for half a day. Back then, I was gearing up to put myself through college. My plan was to work until September of the next year, picking up odd temp jobs, and save up as much as I could for tuition. That was just about all you could do in Brantford. It's hard to get a real job, but the staffing agencies always took just about anyone. The first time I was sent to Coleman's, Frank was out back waiting for me and the two other temps who were supposed to show. Only one of them actually did. He gave us the basic orientation, most of which I breezed past since this wasn't my first rodeo. Oh, we've only got the one truck for today. Bunch of little boxes, you know how it is. Which one of you is better at wrapping skids? Frank coughed, covering his mouth with the sleeve of his jacket. I'm pretty sure it was the first thing he'd ever said to me. The other temp did the wrapping, while Frank and I ended up being the ones actually building the skids. When you're working with a guy in a truck, doing something as boring as building skids, you inevitably get to talking. Uh, might be an early day. Um, it's been pretty slow around here, given it's the holiday rush and all that. It doesn't bother me, though. You know what I heard today? <laughs> What's that? I heard I'm gonna be a dad. Imagine that, right? My wife told me this morning. Oh, wow! Congratulations! It wasn't much more than a formal statement made to a man I barely knew. Frank coughed hard into the sleeve of his jacket again. <coughs> oh, yeah. Best damn day of my life right now. Best day of my life. With the skid built, he let the other temp get to the wrapping and stepped off to the side near the edge of the loading dock for a smoke break. He beckoned me over to join him. Well, now's about as good a time as any for the first break. Don't know if you'll even be here for the third. It gets too quiet around here most of the time. Are you staying the whole day? Maybe. I was kind of hoping to make it home. Although Laura can take care of herself for the most part right now. <laughs> I might need a little bit of extra help, though, if you're offering. He was watching the other temp drag his feet as he took our latest skid way out to the back of the warehouse with the rest. He was right about it being an early day. We were done before lunch. Frank sent the other guy home, but me, he kept me around for another hour or so, helping out with some of the other more minor jobs he had, although there really wasn't enough to justify either of us staying after that. Still, that hour alone, we were talking as if we'd known each other for years. I got sent to Coleman's a couple more times after that over the next two weeks. 
Sometimes it wound up just being me and Frank. We got along pretty well, the way people do when they're stuck working together. Friends for the moment, even if we only barely knew each other. It was Monday on the third week when I came in for my last shift as a temp. It was just me and Frank alone in the warehouse. There were two trucks, already empty and needing to be filled. Loading was faster work than unloading, usually. Frank was quieter this time, giving me only the basics before setting to work. Hey, how's the wife? Huh? Uh, yeah, she, she's fine. Baby's doing all right. Uh, yeah. Baby's doing all right. Hey, you're saving to go to school, right? Yeah, I was thinking of going into marketing over at Mohawk. You're looking for full-time work, right? We're getting a proper opening soon. And you don't seem to have your head up your ass like the usual yokels they send our way. Of course, I jumped at the opportunity. Sporadic temp work wasn't really getting me what I needed. My agency would call me whenever they had something, sometimes an hour after it had already started. Sometimes I got to the work site and just got sent home. It was disheartening, to say the least. Well, the guy that owns the place, Gary, was in the other day. I was talking to him, and we need the spot filled fast. I already asked him about you. He's willing to give you a shot if you want it. He'll be in it in a couple hours. You guys can hash it out. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm your guy. Frank just nodded slowly, without looking at me, and got back to work. I was so happy about the prospect of getting a solid full-time gig, I didn't notice just how lethargic he seemed. I hadn't actually formally met Gary before, just seen him around every once in a while. He was an older guy who spent most of his time in his office near the front of the building. The interview was pretty informal. There wasn't even a contract to sign. He just agreed to pay me in cash. Looking back on it, it was a little shady, but I'd never actually had a full-time job before, so I was just glad to be making money. I was back again the next day, no questions asked for another day of work. The year ended on a pretty high note, all things considered. Frank was in, training me for the first week or so, but after that, it was mostly just me and the temps. Christmas came and went, and a couple of weeks into January, I was still at Coleman's. Frank wasn't in as often as I'd expected him to be. Some days it was just me, all by myself in the warehouse. I'd figured out that I'd probably only been hired to cover for Frank while he took care of his wife, although it seemed kind of odd for him to take time off so early in the pregnancy. I didn't question it too much. He'd come in two or three days a week, and we'd shoot the shit while we worked. It was around the last week of January, on a Thursday, when Frank collapsed. It was the only day that week when he'd been in, and we'd just been packing a skid when he started coughing. He coughed a lot, and I usually didn't say anything, but this time he was doubled over, and I half expected to see him start spitting up blood. Frank? Frank! I was at his side immediately, not sure what to do to help. His knees gave out beneath him, and I at least was able to stop him from collapsing face first into the skid. I guided him into a sitting position on the ground, listening to him gasp and wheeze. 
Jesus, are you all right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm... He coughed again, preventing him from finishing. I ain't doing so good, Jack. He avoided my eyes, and I sat with him, waiting for his explanation about just what the fuck had been going on here. They... They caught it about a month ago. A tumor in my lung. Stage four. Jesus, why the hell didn't you say anything? It was none of your damn business, that's why. Well, can they treat it? What about your wife, your kid? Frank didn't answer me. He just stared out into the darkness of the warehouse, then tried to stand up. I'm going on break. We're done talking about this. He headed towards the tiny break room, and that was the last I saw of him that day. I didn't even see him leave. It was almost three weeks before I saw Frank again. I had asked Gary about him, and he told me he'd given Frank some time off to get his shit in order. I tried to pry, but Gary refused to say anything else. Then, one day I came into work and found Frank already there. He was loading a truck by himself, and he'd already gotten two skids in by the time I'd walked in the door. Hey, Jack! Running late, huh? Well, go grab a pump truck. We, uh, we got two more trucks today. His enthusiasm was unusual, and as I joined him at the truck, I had to ask about it. You're looking better. <laughs> I'm feeling better. Damn, I haven't felt this good in years. You talked to a doctor? Something like that. Look, I'll tell you what, the third truck's due in a four. If we finish up fast, we'll head out for lunch. And I'll tell you all about it. Well, that sure as hell whetted my curiosity. I worked with almost the same vigor as Frank had to get through those first two trucks. We finished up around noon. I climbed into Frank's pickup truck and we stopped by a little diner just down the street for lunch. Gary wasn't even in the office, so he wouldn't give us shit for slacking off for a little while. Frank ordered two beers and sat there, studying the menu before I asked. So, you doing all right? You in chemo or something? Frank's cracked lips curled into a small, wry smile. The kind of smile you see on a man who's seen things. I was for a bit. Not right now, though. I'm in remission. Wait, the cancer's gone? How? I'd never heard of someone bouncing back from the big sea that quickly. And Frank looked better than he'd ever been since I'd met him. The waitress brought us our beers and Frank took a long sip from the bottle before speaking again. Tell me something, Jack. Do you believe in God? I guess so. I never really went to church, but I guess I like the idea of there being a god. Good. What about the devil? You believe in that too? I guess. You know, when someone gets really low, they get desperate. God, the last couple of weeks, I've never been so scared in my life. I was looking into treatment and people kept telling me about how bad my chances looked. They didn't come out and say it, but they might as well have. Everyone was convinced I was going to die. Hell, I'm 38 years old, Jack. If you ask me, 
I'd say I'm too young to die. And hell, with my kid on the way, I don't want to die. I don't want them to grow up without a dad. I want to provide. I want to be a breadwinner. So, I started looking around at things. The kind of things people might not usually look at. What, like herbal medicines and stuff? Well, that was some of it. But, um, other stuff as well. Old Asian techniques and some really obscure stuff. Occult stuff. See, I made some friends while I was poking around on some of those obscure sites. I didn't put too much faith in it, but I happened to mention my diagnosis to one of them. And they sent me to a forum on some unlisted onion site. Now this site, this site was 12 different kinds of fucked up. Really heavy occult shit. Rituals to summon demons to kill people, help get your rocks off. They even summon the big man himself. Crazy, right? <laughs> but I took a look around. I didn't exactly have high hopes, but I figured that people probably bought into this shit for a reason. And there was this one ritual that people kept bringing up. There was a lot of debate as to whether or not it was summoning the devil or just one of his demons. That wasn't what interested me, though. See, people kept talking about this ritual as if they actually did it. And it worked. So I thought, what have I got to lose? And the ritual didn't call for a lot. A mirror, a circle of salt, homemade candles with my own blood inside of them, and a chant done at three in the morning. Pretty standard demonic horse shit, right? But, well, all these people seemed to think it worked, and like I said, what did I have to lose? I rented a motel room for a night, made the candles, and set everything up in the bathroom, right in front of the mirror. Then, at 3 a.m., I did the chant. I probably butchered the hell out of it. At first, I thought it didn't even work. It was just my face in the candlelight. And that's when I saw it, though. In the reflection, a woman walked through the bathroom door. I turned to look at her, but there was no one there. All there was was her reflection in the mirror. She walked up behind me, stopping just inches away from me, her face just over the reflection of my shoulder. She was pale, with thick black hair that cascaded over her shoulders and a calming smile. Hello, Frank, she said in the sweetest voice I'd ever heard. Her chin rested on my shoulder. My mouth went dry. I couldn't believe what I was seeing and I didn't even know what to say. I honestly don't think I expected it to actually work. It's all right, she told me. I know why you called. And yes, I'd love to help. It's my job, after all, to help people like you. It is? I asked. And I probably sounded like a complete dumbass. <laughs> oh, yes. 
I could make it all go away for a cost. I don't work for free, Frank. I do something for you. You do something for me. So you sold your soul? I'd been sitting, immersed in his story up until then. I hadn't even touched my beer, and Frank chuckled. Uh, see, see, that was what I asked too, but no. She just laughed when I brought it up. No, she said. I prefer something a little more tangible, but the cost is always high, Frank. Always. So, I ask her what she wants, and she goes, Your wife. She's pregnant, isn't she? And I mean, God, my heart froze in my chest when she said that, and that smile on her face, that horrible, innocent smile. And she says, that's what I want, Frank. I will cure you, and then, after they've been born, I will take the child, and you will remain free of sickness. No more cancer. My heart was racing. I couldn't have given up my kid, Jack. I just couldn't. But that look on her face, she already knew my answer. But that's when I got an idea. See, a couple of days before I'd been with Laura at the prenatal clinic to get the results of the blood test we'd done. Something pretty basic, just to determine if the kid was going to have any defects, but they also told us the sex of the baby. I'm going to have a little girl. And that's what got me thinking. I looked at the reflection of the devil in the mirror and I said, okay. I said, when my son is born, I'll perform the ritual again. And I'll give him to you. And you know what? That smile on her lips grew wider. Maybe too wide, but the look of utter satisfaction on her face both terrified and comforted me. It's a deal, she said. I'll see you soon, Frank. And then she was gone. I blinked, and she wasn't there anymore. The candles still burned. But it was like nothing had happened at all. Frank took one long pull of his beer and let out a sigh. <sighs> a couple of days later, I was in remission. It was the best goddamn feeling in the world. But then what happens when the kid's born? Son, daughter? It shouldn't matter, right? <sighs> I wonder the same thing myself. According to the people, into this sort of thing, demons are all about specific wording. I promised it a son. I can't give it a son. The deal's a paradox. They already gave me what I wanted. I didn't fail to deliver on the terms. I just won't ever have a son. <laughs> uh, I guess we'll see, won't we? He lifted up the menu for the first time since he began his story and looked down at it. <sighs> but I've been going on long enough. Well, it looks good. I sat there for a few moments, processing all that he'd just told me. He had to just be pulling my leg. That whole story just had to be complete bullshit. But the way Frank had told it, 
I was pretty sure that he completely believed it, even if I didn't. Whatever the truth was, Frank seemed fine over the next few months. Every day I came in, he was usually already there. As I settled into a routine, I convinced myself that Frank was just pulling my leg. Maybe the cancer hadn't been as bad as he'd thought. He'd probably just found a treatment that actually worked and made up that story to screw with me. Or maybe he really did believe it. In which case, maybe he'd been on some sort of drug. He had mentioned he'd been looking into herbal treatments after all. Either way, I was pretty sure that the story he'd told me was just that. A story. And as the months went by, I mostly forgot about it. Eventually, I started applying for colleges. I'd saved up enough to get me through a couple of semesters, and Gary was willing to let me switch to part-time work for a while. So, I saw less of Frank. On the days where I was in, we'd shoot the shit and he'd talk about his wife and the pregnancy, how she was progressing, names they were thinking up for their daughter. Honestly, it was kinda nice seeing him that way. As far as I could tell from what he'd told me, he'd stayed cancer-free, too. He told me his doctor had run some tests on him to see how he'd bounced back so quickly, but hadn't come up with anything. In the end, he'd just chalked it up to a misdiagnosis and kept an eye on him. It was July when Kate was born. That was the name Frank and Laura had gone with. He kept texting me pictures of his newborn little girl on the night he'd taken Laura to the hospital. I don't think I'd ever seen him so happy before. It was kind of heartwarming, actually. And I thought about the story he'd told me back in January. I hadn't dwelled on it, and Frank had never mentioned it again afterwards. Like I said, I'd convinced myself he'd either made the whole thing up or been high off his ass when it had happened. But it was hard not to remember the way he'd spoken as he'd told me about the woman in the mirror. Frank was still as full of energy as he'd been back in January. All he talked about was his daughter. How happy he was to have her, how much he loved her. That kid meant everything to him. He was gushing about her birth as we built a skid one afternoon. And the doc said he'd never seen such a quick labor. Usually it's a few hours, yeah? But Laura's water broke and Kate was out about half an hour later. I looked it up online. I guess it's not common, but sometimes this happens. Isn't that weird? I've never heard of it before, but at least it was quick and she's healthy. Have you seen anything weird lately? In the mirrors? No, I haven't. You know, I've been wondering, though. You would have thought that if anything were going to happen, something would have. But no, it's been quiet. He cracked a tiny, smug little smile. <laughs> I guess I did promise that bitch a son, though. <laughs> Didn't I? <laughs> I guess you did. Frank's smile faded slowly, and he laughed quietly. Maybe I'm in the clear then. <laughs> Given that nothing had actually happened, I was almost sort of inclined to agree with him. Nothing kept happening. I'd applied and got accepted into Mohawk, all geared up to start in September. 
Gary agreed to let me continue part-time just to give me some income during classes, and as August came to a close, I was getting ready to start school. I had about a week left until classes began, when everything happened. Frank and I were loading a truck when Gary came down from his office and headed towards Frank. Not quite running, but moving a lot faster than he usually did. I was inside the truck and could just see him tap Frank on the shoulder from across the warehouse and say something to him. Frank dropped the handle of his pump truck to sprint across the warehouse towards Gary's office. A couple of minutes later, he sprinted past the truck to the door of the warehouse, faster than I'd ever seen him move. I found out later that a truck had blown through a stoplight and hit Laura on the driver's side while she'd been out running some errands. The report in the newspaper said that first responders had tried to get her out of the wreck, although she was dead before they could get to her. Looking at the picture that accompanied the article, I was amazed she'd even survived as long as she had. Her car was crumpled like a piece of paper, bent almost in half from the impact. There was no visible gore in the photograph, but when I later heard that it was going to be a closed casket funeral, I wasn't surprised. As for baby Kate in the back seat, the only consolation was that she had likely been killed in the initial impact. I was a pallbearer for Laura at the funeral for her and Kate. Frank didn't have many people in his life, and I was one of the few he considered a friend. I hadn't known Laura very well, but I did it more so for him than for her. There was no wake afterwards. After the funeral, I just drove Frank home in silence, helped him inside, and watched him pour himself a glass of whiskey almost immediately. What do I do now, Jackie? He'd been fighting the urge to cry the whole time, but now he just let it out. <sighs> what do I do now? He downed the whiskey and collapsed into an armchair in his now empty living room, looking at the abandoned baby toys on the floor in front of him. I couldn't find the words to comfort this man. All I could do was just sit there and listen as he drank and mourned. It's my own damn fault. No, it's not, Frank. You weren't there. You couldn't have... It is! I promised that bitch a son! She knew I tried to dupe her, and she just had to have the last laugh. He knocked back another drink. The bottle he'd taken with him was almost empty. I'd barely even finished one drink of my own. That fucking bitch! Frank, none of that was real. Of course it was fucking real! I saw it with my own two eyes! The bitch in the mirror! I should've known better! I should've known not to fuck with that occult shit! He went to refill his glass and stared at it for a moment, before deciding to just finish off the bottle instead. If I ever see her again, I'll kill her! I swear to fucking God, I'll kill her! Frank, you're not thinking straight. He paused ready to yell again and glared at me so angrily. And I saw that anger in his eyes burn down a little as he slumped to the floor. He sighed, swirling the contents of the mostly empty bottle around. 
I took it out of his hand. Go to bed, Frank. You've had too much. Come on, let's get up. I helped Frank to his feet and led him upstairs to the bed, where he collapsed into it. Then I went back downstairs and sat on the couch, polishing off my own drink. I thought about going home. I wasn't exactly buzzed, although I'd probably get in deep shit if I was caught. Besides, given the condition Frank was in, I was worried he might wake up and do something stupid. Like kill himself or something. Maybe it was better if I stayed the night. I texted my family to let them know I was safe and decided to hunker down on his couch. I think I maybe got, at best, an hour of rest before the screaming started. I was woken up suddenly by the noise, and for a moment, I didn't even know where I was. Get out of here, you fucking bitch! I'm out here! Come and get me! I almost tripped over my own two feet, getting up off the couch and hurrying upstairs to check on Frank. You took them! They've been everything to me, you fucking took them! His bedroom door was closed. I tried it, but it wouldn't budge. Had he locked it? I pounded on the door. Frank? Frank, open up! What the hell do you want from me? Frank wasn't screaming at me, though. He wasn't paying any attention to me. What the fucking hell do you want from me, you bitch? No amount of jiggling the door handle was going to help, and I slammed my shoulder against it. It gave pretty easily, and I could see Frank's bed was empty. But the door to the bathroom was closed. I sprinted towards the bathroom door, not even bothering to try and open that one nicely. I'll do it! I'll do it! Okay? I'll honor the bargain! I'll honor it! Frank, open the door! He didn't answer. I heard him sobbing on the other side, and I slammed into the door again and again, forcing it to budge. Do whatever you want! I'm sorry! I'm sorry! Frank's screams had become miserable whimpers, and at last the door gave beneath me, flying open and sending me spilling into the dark bathroom. Just as it did, I heard the sound of glass shattering and went for the light. The bathroom was a disaster. Frank lay curled in a ball in the bathtub, face wet with tears, and the bathroom mirror lay in pieces on the floor. He hadn't cut himself, thankfully. He just lay there, crying and refusing to move or even so much as acknowledge me. Frank, Frank, it's Jack, Frank. No response, aside from sniffles and whimpers. I let him be for the time being and went to collect some of the broken glass. Somehow I got Frank back to bed that night and he was still asleep and okay when I left him in the morning. I didn't see him back at work for the rest of the week. Gary said he'd given him some more time off and honestly, I think Frank deserved it. Frank killed himself two weeks ago. 
Gary called me a couple of days after it had happened. In the months following the accident, I guess the weight of the loss got too heavy on him. He went out to his garage, ran the garden hose from the exhaust of his car to the window, and keyed the ignition. Gary told me he must have had some sort of mental break before he did it. He'd taken a hammer to the car before he'd done the deed, smashing out the side view and rear view mirrors. Frank didn't have a lot of friends or family. Just a few drinking buddies, a brother who covered the expenses, Gary and me. I never made it to his funeral, but I was at the viewing. The casket was open, and I felt my heart sink as I saw Frank lying there, thinking about what had driven him to this. I didn't notice the woman appear at my side. She couldn't have been older than 30, with long dark hair that spilled over her shoulders. It's such a shame. Losing him now. Were you and Frank close? Kinda. He was good company, you know? She smiled softly at me. I know. It hurt me to see how bad he got at the end. I was there with him a lot over the past couple of months. Trying to help him. Sometimes a man needs help. Her hand dipped down a little bit. Towards her stomach where I noticed the slightest bulge. I was going to give him the news the night he passed. I got the results back. He was going to have a little boy. There was something in her smile, something I didn't like, something that made my heart race. I excused myself, almost on instinct, wanting to get away from this woman. She didn't try to stop me. As I stepped out of the room, my eye was drawn to the mirror across the hall, casting a reflection of Frank's viewing. I could see his brother, Gary, and a few of the other guys. But that woman... I looked back and saw her standing in the middle of the room, eyes locked onto me, and a knowing smile on her lips. The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. 
No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.